Welcome back to another episode of Living Cafe Podcast. If you couldn't tell from the intro, today we are covering Thunder in Paradise, one of my all-time favorite TV show movies ever, starring one of my favorite actors, Hulk Hogan. Now, some of you are probably thinking, that's really one of your favorite TV show movies? Hulk Hogan's really one of your favorite actors? Hell yeah, he is. The intro to Thunder in Paradise was brought to us from Pablo Cruz. He made the main title, Thunder in Paradise, theme song. Um, it kind of starts out in the jungle theme, and then you see the boat flying across the ocean. Uh, great entrance. I thought that he did a great job on the song. And uh, there's also some original soundtracks from the Hulkster himself, from his own band. The Hulkster's original songs and tracks from Hulk Hogan and the Wrestling Boot Band. I think American Made was somewhere in the series. Um, Hulkster's in the house. That may have even been somewhere in the Thunder Paradise series. But I heard there were some th- there were some original Hulkster songs in the show. I'm trying to go back and binge watch all of them now. I think I've caught back up to like episode six or something. I'm I'm glued again, just like when I was a kid. Now, Thunder in Paradise is an American action adventure TV film series. Okay, so the pilot was filmed in a two part episode, but that was actually made into the movie. They had to sell this two part episode movie to see how many future episodes they could get signed to a network. Now, the TV series creator of Thunder in Paradise happens to be the same creators of another blockbuster TV show that didn't exactly get the greatest, fastest, biggest start either. Baywatch turns the tide, riding a new wave of action. Adventure. Danger. Drama. And rescue. Catch the crest of excitement with David Hasselhoff and the men and women of Baywatch. Coming this fall to WLBI 56. Baywatch. That's right. The creators of Baywatch, Michael Burke, Douglas Schwartz, Gregory Bonin, all came up with the concept of Baywatch and tried to get Baywatch to take off. The creators of Baywatch were the creators of Thunder in Paradise. Now, when it goes for Baywatch, the initial season in 1989 did so poorly that its network NBC dropped the series altogether. Then the three creators, along with star David Hasselhoff, worked together to get a second season filmed for syndication, and the show started to pick up viewers. By the fourth season, Baywatch was starting to really take off. By now, the popularity of the action-romance TV show about the day-to-day lives of California lifeguards was growing, and they looked to capitalize on the success. Now, even with Baywatch's beautiful slow-motion, beach-running, tight-swimsuit-wearing women, their audience was primarily, well, women. 
Now, maybe the Hoff will take credit for that. I don't know. I mean, there were also muscular men on the show, too. And it did have, you know, drama, romance. So maybe that's why the, demog- the, the demographic was mostly women. So this new show, this new show, Thunder in Paradise, before it even exactly had the name Thunder in Paradise, they knew they wanted to target the male demographic. It would stick with what worked for Baywatch. The beach, good-looking men and women in bathing suits, but it would add more action in an attempt to attract that male audience. And they knew exactly who they wanted for this new male lead. I am a real American Fight for the rights of every man I am a real American Fight for what's right That's right, Hulk Hogan, the Hulkster. By now, around 1992, Hulkamania had already been around for a decade. He was a household name. And with over 300 official Hulk Hogan products, Andy had a little bit of acting history as Thunder Lips in Rocky III. Hey, why'd you get so crazy on me out there? That's the name of the game. Or No Holds Barred, 1989. His classic movie where he fought the evil Zeus. And he may have made a guy shit his pants. favorites 1991 Suburban Commando with Undertaker making a little cameo although Taker didn't have much to say in that movie hey Goldilocks you got any idea what these cars are worth 30,000 bucks you got any idea what we're gonna do to you if we find one itty bitty scratch on them any idea let me guess you're gonna pound my face break every bone in my body. Then you're going to drag me across the gravel road and feed my remains to a warthog. Is that about right? What are you, nuts? This is the 90s. We're going to sue you. We're going to get you for willful destruction of property. Yeah. Mental anguish. That's giving it to them. Loss of work hours. We get through with you, you ain't going to have a dime left of your name. You'll be hearing from our attorney. That was one of my favorite parts. So they approached the Hulkster with the idea of Thunder in Paradise And he was game. He was leaving the WWF. I think he had just had enough. He was burnt from wrestling. And he said, listen, you know, I'm down to do this pilot, but I have one request. And it's that, you know, it has to be shot in his neck of the woods, which was down in uh, around Clearwater, Florida. He just said he, he just couldn't do the traveling and being away from his family any longer. 
So they began to assemble the main cast. So far, they had Hulk Hogan as Randolph J. Hurricane Spencer as the lead man. Now, the lead guy always needs a sidekick, always needs a buddy, and they found that in Chris Lemon as Morton Brew Brewbaker. His last name was Brewbaker, they just called him Brew. Now, according to Hogan, the original choice for Brewbaker was actually George Foreman. But Foreman had other scheduling conflicts and he couldn't make it happen. But I'm telling you, Chris Lemon was a great choice. Him and Terry, they they meshed so well. The back and forth, I mean, you really believe these guys were like brothers. Then they ended up getting Carol Alt to play Kelly LaRue. Which we'll find out later is kind of like a love interest of Brubaker. And she runs the, the Beach Bar and Grill. Then they got Robin Wiseman to play Jessica uh, Whitaker. Uh, then she ends up becoming Jessica Winnicker Spencer. We'll, we'll get into all of that. And they had Robin play the part for episodes one through three. Then after three episodes, you know, the powers of B just thought she just wasn't a really good fit. So they ended up replacing her with Ashley Gorell to play Jessica Whitaker Spencer for episodes four through 22. Then they got Patrick McNee to play Edward Whitaker. Uh, he was a really good fit in the pilot episodes. He was kind of a dick. Then he kind of, as the show progressed, became kind of a little bit of a comic relief. Um, then they got Felicity Waterman to play Megan Whitaker Spencer. You might know her from Titanic or even Die Hard 2. So they, they've got this really, really great cast assembled. And before they landed on the name Thunder in Paradise, there were other names thrown around such as Trouble in Paradise and Hurricane in Paradise. But thankfully, they settled on Thunder in Paradise. That, ah, those other two names just didn't really, they don't sound right. They don't, they don't flow. Okay, so we've established they've got a big name like Hulk Hogan. They have the co-star Chris Lemon, who did a great job. We know that originally, according to Hulk Hogan, George Foreman was in talks of being, uh, you know, Hogan's sidekick. Let's go over the series concept here. The concept is great. And I even thought the way they told the story was, was great throughout the movies. Probably not the easiest story to tell, but here's the concept. Thunder in Paradise follows the adventures of two ex-United States Navy SEALs. Randolph J. Hurricane Spencer, played by Hulk Hogan, and Martin Brew Brubaker, played by Chris Lemon. You see, they worked as mercenaries out of their Tropic Resort headquarters along the Florida Gulf Coast of the United States. So they had this kind of beach house set into the water on, it really it was a nice tropical resort kind of house. They had their own lo uh, boat dock, covered boat dock for Thunder. And we're going to get into Thunder. And, you know, because Thunder is kind of the, uh, the biggest star of the show. They would travel around the world fighting uh, various criminals and villains. And by doing so, they would use their futuristic high-tech boat. Now, just like the shows of the time, you know, Knight Rider, Airwolf, Street Hawk, they had their own high-tech vehicle. And this ended up being a high-tech boat, which fit in great with the beach theme that they were going for. Now, to fight crime, they used their futuristic high-tech boat. This boat had machine guns, a cloaking mechanism, it had missiles, it had a, like, sub-tank, so you could drop into the water, come back out, the water would drain. They had jet skis. Everything you would need 
if you were a crime-fighting mercenary. Now, some will say, how do they explain the bottom of this boat? You know, they had their, their cockpit area. Uh, I mean, they had a lot of stuff down there, and they never really explained how there's so much room down there. But for me, watching the show, it didn't ruin it. That's kind of if you really want to nitpick at something. Oh, and did I mention that this is a boat with 1,200 horsepower capable of reaching 110 miles an hour? Now, to make things even harder for these guys, they had to figure out how to balance their dangerous undercover work with their responsibilities of raising recently widowed Randolph Spencer's stepdaughter. You know, we went through the main cast, and when I said Megan Whitaker, Megan Whitaker is Jessica's mother. Um, we'll get into how her and how her and Randolph got together, um, how it happened so quick in the series for him to be a widower with the daughter. We're gonna we're gonna cover that a lot more in the watch along part of this episode. But for right now, we're just kind of breaking down the series concept. Now, former model Kelly Larue, who we mentioned was played by Carol Alt, she helps the guys care for Jessica. Again, she runs the Scuttlebutt Beach Bar and Grill. And whenever they're out on their mercenary missions, Kelly keeps an eye on her. And again, it probably helps a little bit that she's the romantic interest of Brew. Okay, so the pilot movie is called Thunder in Paradise. And this was originally released on home video the week of uh, September 27, 1993. It was not broadcasted on television until the beginning of season one, after which it was split into two episodes for reruns and later syndication. So the first two episodes you see of Thunder in Paradise, the TV show, are slightly, very slightly, edited halves of the original movie, Thunder in Paradise, that they did for the pilot. The only differences we see in the first two episodes of Thunder in Paradise, the TV show, that they took out of the movie that they cut into two to make these two episodes are the beginning action where Hogan rescues somebody from Cuba and an intense arm wrestling match between Hurricane and Jim the Anvil Nineheart on the beach. Why on earth they cut that for the TV show, I don't know, but... That's the only two differences you're going to see between the first two episodes of the TV show and the first movie. That's the only thing they cut. So yeah, I mean, they got, they ended up getting, you know, a series, a television series. They got Thunder in Paradise 1, 2, and 3, the movies, which were just episodes of the TV series that they took and made movies out of. Um, we know that the first Thunder in Paradise movie were... The ended up being the first two episodes of the TV show. They just cut a little bit of the movie out because they were more interested in telling the story of Randolph Spencer and Megan Whitaker and Jessica Whitaker than they were showing the action in the beginning of the pilot. They wanted us to start the TV series off with a with more of a background story. The pilot didn't need a background story. Right off the bat, they needed action. They needed people to be invested into this pilot. The second Thunder in Paradise movie used the two-part episodes from the TV series Sealed with a Kismet, episodes six and seven. The third Thunder in Paradise movie used the two-part episode Deadly Lessons, episodes 17 and 18, to make, again, Thunder in Paradise 3. They also had a video game, a CDI interactive game. Now, they used... Uh, the two-part episode from the TV series, The Major and the Minor, episodes 
episodes 21 and 22. That was for the basis of the Thunder and Paradise CDI game. It's kind of cool. Uh, the major and the minor, those two-part episodes that they were using for the basis of the CDI game, while filming for the TV show, they did additional filming for the video game at the same time. They didn't really want to stop there, though. They had plans for another video game based on Thunder and Paradise. This one, this one was from the Software Toolworks. And this was announced for Super Nintendo Entertainment System and Sega Genesis, but sadly, it, just, it was never released. Okay, so let's get into the making of the pilot. Let's get into the making of Thunder in Paradise. So, in April of 1993, with over 80 crew members, the pilot for Thunder in Paradise started filming. Now, the pilot was actually, like we said, two-hour-long episodes and it was budgeted for $3.5 million. Now, that $3.5 million, uh, that was a total cost that was split between CBS and an Italian distributor called Ritella Italia. CBS wanted to wait till the pilot was filmed before they committed to more episodes, which is a rational thing. But Ritella Italia was ready to order 14 more episodes right away. They just ordered for the pilot to be made, and they already want 14 more episodes. Now, and I'm, I'm guessing it's because you had three successful producers who came up with Baywatch. So you have these three successful producers, and you have a huge name like Hulk Hogan. Theoretically, what could go wrong? The shooting took a number of weeks. According to Hulk Hogan, $120,000 was spent on hotel rooms and $56,000 on catering. As they were wrapping up the recording of the pilot, the producer started selling European distribution for the series, fully expecting CBS to pick the show up for the States. You know, as we know now, they didn't. Okay, now there were rumors thought that the pilot was so bad that the producers for CBS just wanted to scrap the whole show. The truth of the matter is, CBS ordered six episodes with the possibility of reordering more episodes later. The producers thought that the deal that they were offered would be too slow and that there would be too big of gaps in between episodes. And we know what happens to TV shows when that happens. So instead, they decided to pursue first-run syndication. Now again, this worked for these creators before with Baywatch. They were confident that they would find enough buyers in enough regions of the country to make the show a reality. Television syndication is when a program is sold separately to smaller affiliated channels across various different markets, rather than being carried by one large broadcast company across the country. Now historically, shows would wait to do syndication after they've hit like the 100 episode mark. That's because at this time, the show is clearly a success and it makes for a good safe package for broadcast companies to feel comfortable in. I mean, that's just saying, if you have 100 episodes, it gives, you know, broadcast companies something to go back on. It has a viewer history to check and run numbers. It's a lot harder sell if you have no previous syndication. But before the pilot was aired, before it was ever aired, Thunder was picked up in enough markets to be viewable in 88% of U.S. households. 
and it also found distribution in 45 countries. They took their two pilot episodes and released them as a movie, Thunder in Paradise. Now, they had 20 more episodes locked down. The movie Thunder in Paradise is out. The syndication deals that they've made guaranteed them 20 more episodes locked down. But once again, the question was there. Where do they film the TV series? Would they stay in, I think it was Pinellas County, where they did the pilot two episodes for the movie? Now, when you have people creating a TV show that's already responsible for a blockbuster hit, and you have a name like Hulk Hogan, many places are going to come headhunting for you, locations. And many places did. They sent invitations to have them bring the show from the Jacksonville area to other counties, even Hawaii put a bid in. But one place finally won them over. Walt Disney World MGM Studios, who at this time was trying to stay competitive with Universal Studios that was just down the road. See, Universal Studios was doing this interactive thing with fans. Fans could see how movies were made, and the MGM was kind of that way for Disney. MGM had everything you could imagine. They had everything to offer a film crew. Every set imaginable in the Epcot, in the Epcot Center. They could be, literally, they had sets for everywhere in the world. Every country in the world. They had a set they could just walk to. Plus, they kind of offered a hefty seasonal budget of $20 million. Now, the deal in Orlando and Orange County offered free use of equipment, office space, as well as $210,000 towards the production of the show. But they wanted something back. They wanted something in return. And in return, the show had to hire a certain amount of crew from the Orlando area, and they, spent, and they had to spend a certain amount with local businesses. So they had to spend a certain amount of money in these local businesses if they wanted to, if they wanted to deal around there. The show also had to make one episode where Orlando was painted in a positive light. So they were off to the races, filming the next 20 episodes at Disney, with a seasonal budget of $20 million and a crew of 155. Almost the entire show was filled at Disney. I think they may have left a couple of times an episode, or maybe a couple times total. I can't remember. They hardly ever left. And why would you? You didn't, you didn't have to. They almost never left Disney. And you can see this in many of the sets. The Don Cesar Hotel was replaced with the Grand Florinian, uh, the Don Cesar was used in the pilot episode movie, and I personally liked the Don, but you know both of them were, were just beautiful and great for the show. And the Scuttlebutt Bar and Grill that we saw in the Thunder in Paradise pilot uh, movie and episodes, that was uh, that set was being placed on the beach of the Seven Seas Lagoon. That's where they ended up moving that. You know, to give some examples of how great the MGM was for Thunder in Paradise. The episode C. Quentin, episode four. And for the wrestling fans like myself, you're going to get a kick out of this if you haven't seen it yet. Steve Borden, Sting, plays the evil villain Hammerhead. He's the biggest villain really in the series. And C. Quentin is filmed. The set is mostly an underseas prison because they have to make sure that Hammerhead is in a prison that even he can't escape from. So if you need an underseas set 
for an entire episode. What was better than using the Epcot Center Living Seas Pavilion? It worked out perfectly. And also, guest starring was Heidi Mark, uh, 1995's July Playmate of the Month. I figured King would have something to say about that. Now, episodes 6 and 7, titled Sealed with a Kissmas, parts 1 and 2, also used to make Thunder, the, Thunder in Paradise, the movie 2, remember they would use episodes to make the movies, used the Morocco Pavilion at Epcot heavily to create the fictional country of northern, of northern Tandaniva. They even used the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular set as an actual scene, even mimicking the stunts performed at the Indiana Jones stunt show for Thunder in Paradise. Episode 8, Changing of the Guard. That episode is set in England, and it uses a combination of the bottom of Cinderella's Castle and the UK Pavilion at Epcot, and even part of the Canadian Pavilion to create the English countryside. In that episode, Changing of the Guard, Episode 8, there was guest star John O'Hurley, uh, you probably remember him from Seinfeld and um, X-Files. Episode 14, Plunder in Paradise. The show used Pleasure Island's famous Adventures Club as a secret room in a mansion. The Canadian Pavilion makes a return in Episode 17, Deadly Lessons Part 1. Also, again, part of uh, Thunder in Episode the Movie 3 as a mountainous backdrop and you can even slightly see the sign O Canada in the background. So I love little Easter eggs like that. So just remember, if you go back and watch it, episode 17, they use the Canadian pavilion. Look for that sign in their uh, mountainous backdrop scene. Episode 19 uses um, Disney's casting facility as the site of a high-tech Russian facility. And then later in the episode, they use the Magic Kingdom as well as, well, the Magic Kingdom. I mean, even mercenaries need a break. Basically, they were at the Magic Kingdom to show Orlando tourism in a positive light. Remember that deal they had? A deal that they ended up being disqualified for due to not meeting the spending and hiring requirements set by Orange County. So they filmed a spot at the Magic Kingdom to make Orlando tourism look good, but they were disqualified because they didn't meet that spending and hiring budget that Orange County said they had to meet. So finally, in episodes 21 and 22, the major and the minor, part one and two, they used the Streets of New York set at uh, Disney MGM. They used the Japan Center at Epcot. They used a water park from Typhoon Lagoon. Again, all at Disney. They had everything there. So Thunder in Paradise hits TV screens March 25th, 1994, the actual TV show. And it did receive good views from the Florida markets, but others, not so much. Producers couldn't get the show picked up for a second season anywhere, so they did a plan B to make money. This is where you see the second and the third movies come from. You know, they took episodes 6 and 7 to make the second movie, 17 and 18 to make the third movie, 21, 22, uh, they made the CDI interactive game. So they still made money in the uh, all the recordings that they already had. I really do wish, though, that Super Nintendo Sega Genesis game would have came out. 
but the same year the show was canceled, Hogan would return to wrestling, this time signing with another MGM friend, that in WCW. He would go on to become the world champion, have his match with Ric Flair, and we're going to talk about that during the Watch Along of Thunder in Paradise. We're going to talk about a Ric Flair visit to the set of Thunder. We're going to talk about uh, a couple of Hogan's friends from WCW uh, making their guest appearances on the TV show. You know, just to name a few. Ed Leslie, you know, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. I think he was in like 14 episodes. Jim the Anvil Nineheart. He was in like 10 episodes himself. The Giant Gonzalez. Um, we know we see him in the first movie. We see him in the two-episode pilot. We see him in the, you know, the two first episodes of the TV show. He is the villain Kilmore's uh, bodyguard who goes after and has a couple fight scenes with Hogan. Fred Ottman, who we know was Tugboat, Typhoon, Shockmaster. We even see Terry Funk in an episode. Uh, I think it was the episode uh, Queen of Hearts. We see Jimmy Hart um, in Hogan's Wedding on the show. He's in, I think, 16 episodes. So it's no wonder he goes to WCW with Hogan. And of course, we can't forget Hammerhead, the biggest villain of the series, Sting, Steve Borden. He was in Deadly Reckoning, Identity Crisis, C. Quentin, Tug of War. He did a great job, man. He always had those stinger eyes out real big to show emphasis that he was the bad guy and he was serious. We had guest stars like Heidi Mark, you know, Playboy Playmate, um, Kiki Shepard, who's known for NYPD Blue in 93, Baywatch in 89, Thunder in Paradise. Ty Collins, uh, former Miss Virginia, USA. She was she was a guest star. Who else was it? Uh, Sherman Helmsley, you know, from the Jeffersons, Dinosaurs, I mean, all in the family. And he was also in Mr. Nanny with Hogan, another one of my favorite Hogan movies. And let's not forget, like we talked about him earlier, John, O'Hur- John O'Hurley from Seinfeld and X-Files and uh, All My Children. The show had so much star power. And I loved the story. I loved the, I loved the setting. I loved everything about it. I mean, it had a hell of a cast that seemed to really work well together. They meshed so well. They had a great story. They had... Babes in teeny tiny bikinis. They had action. They had adventure. But sadly, we know the fate of Thunder in Paradise. But what about the actors? What about the actors after Thunder in Paradise? Well, we know Hulk Hogan went on to become a mega superstar yet again. Now working for WCW and became a multiple time champion. And formed the largest, most popular, biggest named stable ever in professional wrestling, the NWO with Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, which I think still holds the merchandise sales record to this day. Then we have Giant Gonzalez. Why was he one of the guest stars on Thunder in Paradise? How did he get into the mix? We know that a lot of WCW wrestlers made their way to the show at one point in time on Thunder, but how did Gonzalez get there? That's, a, that's an interesting story all on its own. You see, Gonzalez was from Argentina. And even though wrestling had him built at 8 foot tall, his true height was actually 7 foot 7. 
and by the age of 16, he was already seven foot two. So if you can believe it at this height, he became a pretty well-known basketball player in Argentina, he even made the Argentine national team, uh, eventually going on and getting drafted by the NBA. Gonzalez took part in the 1988 NBA draft, being chosen by the Atlanta Hawks in the third round, number 54 selection. Why does this matter at all with Thunder in Paradise? The Atlanta Hawks were owned by Ted Turner. Ted Turner owned WCW. Well, Gonzalez really didn't pan out as an NBA player for a couple of reasons. He wasn't used to the rigorous training and activities that came with being an NBA player, along with already having a pretty severe knee injury. But Ted Turner saw what he had, and he brought him into the WCW to be a wrestler. And on May 19, 1990, he was introduced to the wrestling world at the pay-per-view Capital Combat, wearing shorts, as he competed as a fan favorite and billed as being close to 8 foot tall. Over the next two years, he feuded with the likes of Ric Flair of the WCW Heavyweight Championship, participated in the Chamber of Horrors match in 1991, and he also had a date on TBS with Missy Hyatt. That may have been his crowning achievement in WCW. He also had a feud with Sid Vicious and the One Man Gang, who both stood at six foot seven themselves. The point of those feuds were to determine who the real giant was in WCW. He also did a small cross-promotion stint with New Japan Pro Wrestling before signing with the WWF in 1993 which we know would lead him to his famous WrestleMania 9 match with The Undertaker. I don't know if you guys remember the get-up that WWF put on Gonzalez. It was like this inside-out flesh unitard with hair on the shoulders and knees. Uh, wasn't the best look. I kind of see where they were going with it, but it really didn't land with a lot of people. But really, Gonzalez didn't go too far in wrestling. Um, he's still... I think, I think he's the biggest giant there has been yet. Maybe Kali comes close. Or Sky High Lee. I, I don't know who would have been the tallest giant, but man, if he wasn't, he had to have been close to it. At Built at 8 foot, 7 foot, 7. According to Ron Reese, Gonzalez was set to make a return to WCW in 1995 at the Halloween pay-per-view, Halloween Havoc. Now, he was supposed to play the role of the Yeti, which was supposed to come in, interfere in Hogan's match, and make sure that Hogan did not retain the WCW championship against the Giant. Now, this fell through um, because Gonzalez had a diabetes attack backstage at Halloween Havoc, leading him to have to be flown back to Argentina. And Ron Reese actually had to take the place of Gonzalez as the rule of the Yeti. And Ron Reese himself stood pretty tall. I mean, I think he was seven foot two himself. Now, what about Chris Lemon? Chris uh, is the son of the famous Jack Lemon. Um, one of my favorite movies to watch, especially at the beginning of summer and in the wintertime is Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men. I love Jack Lemon. Uh, Chris Lemon has been said to have said that his acting career was kind of shot because of 
the um, role he had in Thunder and Paradise that people did not want to book him after this. I don't really know that that would be the case because honestly his acting was was really good in Thunder and Paradise. Given some of the corny lines that he was fed, I mean he he gave them to the audience so well that he kind of took the corniness out of them. I thought he actually did a great job and people should have looked more towards, hey, this is what the man was given. Look what he did with it. So I do know that he went on to write a book about his father, Twisted Lemon, and I think a screenplay as well. Um, other than that, I'm not, I'm not really sure what Chris is doing these days. But that gets us to the big star of the show, Thunder. Whatever happened to Thunder? Whatever happened to Thunder? The crime-fighting, high-tech, badass boat. Here's the rumor that the boat was bought in 96 or 97, the canopy was removed, and the boat was completely redone by Kurt K. in Illinois. It was converted to a pleasure boat and sold to a gentleman in Missouri. The last I've been able to find anything is that the boat still resides in Missouri. It was all white with thunder written in purple down the side. That's kind of the only thing I could find about where Thunder is. Now, Hogan said himself, stated in an interview, that he did not get Thunder after the production was done, but he had one built. But the Hulkster also said that he made this decision when he was heavily medicated following a surgery. So does he still have his boot? I don't know. I don't know where the uh, second Thunder is either at this point. But I hope you guys enjoyed this show. I hope you learned something. I hope you go back and watch the Thunder in Paradise TV show and movies. And I hope you love them as much as I do. And we will be back with part two, where Sean will come in and we're going to sit down and do a watch along of Thunder in Paradise, the pilot movie. It's going to be a lot of fun. I know he's pretty excited to watch it. We've been talking about it for a week, texting back and forth. So it's going, to be, it's going to be really good to continue this episode at part two when we come back to Thunder in Paradise. Thunder in Paradise will be right back. <laughs>